seemed like they were coming after photographers. I, I joked that the difference in that between a photographer and a, a reporter was the photographer got beat up by the cops and the reporter strained their thumbs tweeting about it. It's all journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell, and uh, I have got a new podcast for you. This time around, I talked to Baynard Woods, the editor-at-large at the Baltimore City Paper. Baynard came in studio, and we talked about his work in the follow-up to the Freddie Gray funeral last April. And uh, Baynard was out on the streets with his photographer, saw a lot of things, um, saw a lot of amazing things, and uh, he, he tells us about his experiences, you know, what it's like to be a journalist out there covering breaking news for, uh, you know, an alternative paper, um, how it sort of affected him, how he sort of adjusted the way he did his job uh, to bring this amazing unfolding story to the readers of the, of the city paper. I'm not going to spend too much time talking this up. It's a really great interview, and I hope you enjoy it. And uh, here you go. Welcome to Tell Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell. In studio with me today is Baynard Woods of uh, the Baltimore City Paper. And uh, as you were sort of describing, you're, 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 you used to be uh, the editor-in-chief or the editor? One of the yeah, I was managing editor for, uh, for a while and, and arts editor simultaneously with that. Yeah, just had some, some other things going on and so just became editor-at-large. We met at uh, we met briefly at uh, the AAN convention in Salt Lake City, and you were on a panel that I attended. Uh, we were talking about uh, race and crime uh, coverage uh, for the alt weekly papers, and, and your perspective was that you were in Baltimore when the riots happened uh, earlier in the year, and you had uh, several stories about you know what was going on with you, what was going on with the Baltimore City Papers staff, with your uh, photographer. So could, could you maybe sort of talk about how that story and those incidents kind of developed? The development of that story has really been going on for a, a long, long time. And so, of course, last April, Freddie Gray died in police custody. Um, as he was being arrested, it was filmed and was calling out that, you're hurting me, you're hurting me, died somehow between there and the police van. The first hearing is tomorrow actually, uh, with the uh, six officers who were charged. But, you know, as I walked around after that through Sandtown, Winchester, his neighborhood, it became clear that that kind of, he was stopped by the police, first of all, just because it was a high-crime area, made eye contact with the police and ran. Oh, he was guilty of something. And they chased him, right. He was guilty of of living in a high-crime area. So as I started talking to people more and more in that area, discovered that from 8-year-old girls to 80-year-old women, they were being stopped Every time you'd walk out of your house, sat down by police, searched. And that didn't happen in the more mixed neighborhood that I live in, in Mount Vernon. That didn't happen in in the arts district neighborhoods. And there are the high crime neighborhoods are are predominantly, Baltimore's a very segregated city, are predominantly black neighborhoods. And so began to see how this story had been building for so long with the police force, which over 75% of which doesn't live in the city of Baltimore, the police forces policing the black community much differently than it was the white community. And it, while it wasn't an official like stop and frisk policy, it very much was a broken window, stop and frisk. I felt like an occupation of 
the city to the people who lived there. So the anger, I think so much of the anger that came out of Freddie Gray in Baltimore came from harassment by police for extensive periods. So during the protests, you know, and I think it's important that the way we've started to call it is the whole events from right after he died and, and April 19th up through the end of the curfew really was the uprising. There was the one day on April 27th that was, was a riot. Um, and then there were protests then, but the all of those events together were the uprising. And during that, you would see these amazing things where police would be mainly from out of town, would be standing there in their riot gear, and the residents who recognized individual officers who had to stand there quietly day after day after day after day while the officers questioned them, told them how they were no good and stuff. Now the police weren't able to talk, and they were behind their shields, and the people could sit there and say, hey, remember when you said that to me? Now you can't talk. And so all of this anger that was building up really was a call for some kind of justice and some kind of equality in the city of Baltimore. Where do you come in as a alt-weekly journalist? You know, How do you approach a story? You, you say you're, you're walking around and talking to people after uh, Freddie Gray's death. Are you getting sort of a a feeling of, you know, that something's going to happen? And, and, you know, how do you approach that as a journalist? Yeah, so I had been, I'd made the protests be my beat since last fall when large protests started in Baltimore um, over the Mike Brown, uh, the failure to in, indict Officer Darren Wilson and the Mike Brown shooting. And so during that time, I really got to know all the principal organizers, protest organizers in Baltimore and also, the police, the, the commissioner was here at that point. He was out on the ground. And, and, and at that point, it should be said, the police handled it really well. They were the commissioner was on the ground every day, was talking to the protesters, was there was no riot gear out. We were seeing all over the country, the footage, and they weren't doing that in Baltimore. And our commissioner had been the commissioner, as it turned out, during the, the Fruitvale riots in, in Oakland and had also, or they called it chief there. Um, but Bats had been the, the the chief there. And then he'd also been involved in a number of other riot situations. And so he thought that he needed to stand back and not be really aggressive. But once in all of those cases, like in 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 the case in, in the, at the Fruitvale station, it was the transit cops who, who had committed the, the murder and and not his own police. So it became a really different story when it was Baltimore police that were the ones who were accused and they came out and started coming out with the riot gear. But so we knew the sort of the principal players knew the terrain, knew what was going on. And so immediately and switching from managing editor to already transitioning to being at large. The reason I was doing that was because I wanted not to be chained to the desk. And so that also positioned me and, and our, our photo editor, Joe Giordano to be out, on the street all the time. And so we just made it our mission to be constantly out following what was happening, following the people that, and then we could know who to talk to or know who to watch. And except new leaders were springing up every minute, which was amazing. People in West Baltimore who, um, that was the most, when DeRay McKesson came, said that Baltimore was the most organic protest. It was uh, from Baltimore, but an organizer in um, Ferguson really made his name sort of in Ferguson said Baltimore was the most organic protest he'd seen. So we really, and most of the protests centered around the Western District Police Station um, where Freddie Gray was taken into custody and the place a few blocks from there where he was initially stopped by the police. And 
where there were vigils being held. So we just followed everyone, and you you saw it really escalate from the first days after he died to, uh, you know, leading up towards the first real trouble on Saturday when the police broke out the riot gear and real confrontations started to happen. I guess what you were describing is it, it was important for you to cover the story that you had to be on the ground and pretty much since it was an organic event, as you describe it, just be there where things were happening. And, and what were you doing? You, you had a, you had a photographer with you. Were you just sort of, you know, observing and, and, and just sort of interviewing on the fly and taking notes, you know, observing? What was your, your approach? Yeah, I mean, it was the first time for me that my phone became my principal tool in, in journalism. I was tweeting constantly. My wife... Only she knew not to worry about me as long as the Twitter feed was going. And and, um, the same with my paper. That was how we were. um, And so I was videoing, taking pictures, um, sending out live pictures right then, tweeting where locations of marches were, um, what police were doing, trying to get photographs of the name badges on police as much as possible, was trying to. We'd had the Sun had done, the Daily Paper had done a remarkable investigative story several months back about the number of officers that had been involved in settlements, uh, millions and millions of dollars over the last several years that the department had given out for brutality settlements. So I wanted to see how many of those guys were on the, the front lines. And so one of the main ones, Detective Herschel, we saw right there on the front lines commanding people. And everyone knew that this guy was was seemingly really in trouble, had trouble with the community, had trouble with command, and he was right there on the the front lines. And so we were trying to figure out things like that. Also, yeah, doing interviews and recording them, taking notes as much as possible to be able to go back later and write a, you know, try to get a more comprehensive story. But for those days, it was just all what was happening on the ground. And I mean, one of the biggest challenges with that, that we all learned, every reporter in Baltimore was trying to find somewhere to charge their phone constantly. We were all run because we'd be out 12 hours straight, 14 hours straight, and you'd run out of juice. And that, that ended up causing problems for us later. The, uh, the Baltimore uh, paper is it's, it's an, it's an alternative paper. It's a weekly paper, right? Right. So now this is stuff that you were, were you writing stuff to go up onto the web and then at the same time sort of assembling stuff that would go into the paper? Yeah, web stuff was coming up immediately, and our, our, we closed the paper on Monday, so we come out on Wednesday, deadline first thing Tuesday morning. So we put it to bed on Monday night, and Monday happened to be the, the most volatile day of, of the uprising on the 27th, and we scrapped our entire paper that night and put, put a whole new paper together with a lot of the stuff that we'd had going up. I mean, as most of the alt-weeklies, we had become a daily sort of anyway with, with web stuff. Um, but we really took a lot of things we'd already had from the web and then what we'd been reporting on. So I was out the about 3 that afternoon after the funeral um, at Mondawmin Mall. There started being real skirmishes between kids and police, which turned out being really... The kids were trapped in many ways. The police had put out a in order to, to close the schools early to stop all public transportation at the mall. When the kids get out, the police are there in riot gear. So when we see that, we immediately run there. It moved from there down to pen, the, the corners of, of Pennsylvania and North Avenues, which is the heart of black Baltimore. And that was where by the time we got there, there were two transit cop cars or a car and a van on fire 
Um, that was where the CVS burned. When we made it back from there to the office to charge up and stuff for a little while, we made the decision to write those stories up right then of what had happened that day, put those in with the stories from the previous Tuesday on, and make dispatches from whatever reporters we had had that been out of at each significant event each day and have photos because we had so many great photos and it didn't feel right to have a film review or a whatever kind of review we had. So we finally got the paper to bed. We stayed all night, um, got the paper to bed after sunrise and the office where we are looks over I-83 leading into town when we put the paper to bed, we looked out the window, and there's the National Guard pouring in. Um, dozens of trucks of guard transport. We all knew we weren't going to sleep again and walked out the door and went right back to it and went to the cleanup efforts, went to the guard mountings, and didn't. I don't think I slept for about 72 hours. Other people were on about the same level, and we scrapped the whole issue the next week again and for two weeks in a row only had – Uprising coverage. So, and that just seemed to be the journalistically the, the most responsible thing to do. Yeah. I mean, because the city was was where the city was at, and, and it would be ludicrous of you to to present anything else if you're out there, if you're covering it, you have this material, you you need to, you know, what was the what was the feedback you were getting from your readers with, with the stuff that you're producing, either online or or um, you know the print. I'd never felt like what we were doing was as important as. I did then. It was, you know, and there's some, we can talk about some of the problems with this, I guess, too. But but it was everywhere we would go, the people that were our readers would just be like, thanks, way to go, way to go. And and me and the photographer, uh, Jam Giordano, we got very recognizable, partly on purpose, wearing the same stuff every day so that the cops would recognize us and so that the protesters would recognize us and know that we were press. And you know, we were always there with the, where the cable people were and, and ended up being spotted a lot and being in other people's pictures a lot and being... And so it became very recognizable, but we're very... Our readers were very appreciative because people would say, oh, I, I was just following you guys to find out what was going on right now. Now, we heard police say when someone said, hey, you, your guy just pushed me down. One of your cops just pushed me down. They'd say, oh, go tell it to city paper. The police got very immediately started to see us as a biased source. And because we were reporting so much on the ground and not necessarily listening to their spokespeople. So, and, and but, you know, and, and maybe I was, uh, there's a point where it became where I was very much biased. I, I should come out clearly. I came out clearly in writing to say it because we were out on the Saturday night after there was a, a fracas at Camden Yards when it got really tense between the police yeah. and the, the protesters we went to see what was happening back at the Western District at midnight. It was me and my photographer, and there was no other press really there at the time. And our phones were almost dead. There were 30 or something protesters and maybe over 100 police and, and severe riot gear. And they would start charging the protesters. And at one point they charged and beat and knocked down my photographer. And so at that point, I think I became – it was a much more difficult situation to be because then one of the main protesters, the guy who – uh, grabbed the microphone away from the CNN uh, correspondent and said, fuck CNN. That guy ran up to me and said, they got your boy, and grabbed me by the shoulder, and we ran back into the fray of riot police. He being in much more danger than than me as a white guy press, and we went and got the photographer up and made sure he was safe. And so it 
became clear to me who was against me and who was ready to hurt me. There was a, I saw, I witnessed a photographer who was a freelancer but was there working for Vice get shot in the head with one of the rubber bullets they were shooting on that Monday, and then thrown down, picked up and hogtied, taken into custody. I was there 48 hours later when he got pulled, when he got out of custody, only because the public defender's office issued a writ of habeas corpus um, and got 100 people out that day. But he told them he was pressed when they took him in. They didn't care. And they took him when um, my photographer got beat down. They did lead, let him up. But another photographer from Reuters got taken into custody and then let out of custody. Now, do you think that the reason they were doing that was just so that there would be no like visual record of what was going on? I think so. It seemed like they were coming after photographers. I, I joked that the difference in that between a photographer and a, a reporter was the photographer got beat up by the cops and the reporter strained their thumbs tweeting about it. And it was, it did seem to be that they were targeting specifically photographers, although, you know, we were all photographers. So it was almost like they hadn't caught up with the New Times to know that, like, my phone was taking pictures, too. I was taking video, and, and but my just my camera wasn't as nice. And, and um, But they did, they were really going after, when they charged at the photographer, there was another guy who had been talking junk to a cop, saying what I said, like, oh, you, now how does it feel when you have to stay quiet? And kind of shadow boxing in, in his guard and they decided they were going to get that guy and they made a formation and charged at him and i think they didn't want him to be them to see there to be pictures to see what happened to him so that's when they got both the photographers but uh giordano too i mean he was a hero in all this he was on the ground and after they knocked him down he was still shooting and he got a picture of a billy club hitting hitting the head of the other guy between all the police legs after they'd pulled him inside the circle. So he really was a, uh, you know, he was a real hero. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty amazing. Were you ever, uh, were you concerned at all for your own safety at any time? Oh, hell yeah. Um, <laughs> I was more concerned for his than for mine um, because, you know, he needed to get where he could get a good shot. I just needed to be able to see. It didn't matter if my angle was a great angle or not. So when there were bricks being thrown, Neither of us ever felt that anyone was intentionally throwing a brick at us, but people's aim with bricks aren't always that great. And uh, I didn't like being in between the the police and the the. Um, but yeah, that moment when when they had taken him down, I'm filming it and I'm screaming, "He's a photographer! He's a photographer! He's pressed! They're not stopping him! They're about to grab me!" So I dart to the side, and my phone battery died right then. His phone battery was already dead. We're in the middle of the night by the Western District Police Station um, in West Baltimore, and he was the one with the car. I didn't have a car. I didn't have keys to a car. Um, no other press there. And the police were getting really, really fierce at that point. They just pushed another blogger, the Baltimore Spectator, and said they were going to come after him. So I, I felt very threatened by the police, especially at that moment. And, and um, there was a curfew on, right? Yeah, there was a curfew on. Though it had not gone into effect at that point. It went into effect uh, a couple of days after that. Oh, okay. But so. we, we had letters where we were able to go around after the curfew. Um, but I on numerous occasions during the curfew, they would yell. And they tried to keep the media staged in one area. And so we refused to go there. And there were points where they would be um, yelling and, and sticking mace in our faces. We got gassed. The, the first night of the curfew, they, they really hit us hard with, 
with the tear gas, which, you know, as it turns out, it wasn't particularly dangerous. But And I, I at that point, I'd not slept almost since Saturday. And so I, I feared my own safety as much in retrospect that, and then I got tear gas that I was going to make dumb decisions just because right. of not being able to think clearly. So that night, I decided for the rest of that Tuesday, I was going to stay back a little bit so I didn't do something as, as stupid from not being able to think clearly. You're describing a pretty incredible situation. What motivated you to go out each time? I I think, you know, and I, and I wish that, that Joe were here too because we really were a team on that. I mean, I think part of it was if one of us went out, the other one was going to go. Cause we had to, and so if I was exhausted, he wanted to go and vice versa. And so we kept, but it was really the love of the city. I mean, there was a journalistic, you know, wanting to get the story was definitely, but it was also just wanting to get the story for the city. When we, we had gotten bought by the daily paper the previous year. And I, I wrote a, an op-ed for the, the times about that. And in that I, I cast that the alt weekly's job wasn't just to, objectively report what was happening on the city, but was to be a player and to love the city and to hate the city and to fight with it and to fight for it. And it really felt like it was fighting for our people and that it was our, it was our people and it was our city. And there also was a way in which being two white guys, we could go out there and be where like that Saturday night, we were the only white guys out there until a guy from the sun showed up. A little bit later, but we saw the way that the police were behaving when there weren't all the press nor- that's normally there, and when there when there usually and when there aren't white guys around, and so it felt like a responsibility to use our white privilege in a way to report on what was happening, and that's the part of it that's maybe a little bit problematic when we would go around and there would be this sort of hey hey you guys are doing great. It felt like there is, and and one of our readers, a, a black reader, wrote me and said. Hey, you know, it really makes me kind of uncomfortable, this kind of saint-making of white dudes for going into gritty black areas. And, and I think there was, some, there was some truth in that, and that that's a problem. But, like, I mean, the only alternative at that point for me was stay fucking home, and I wasn't going to do that. And so, like, while I acknowledge that, yeah, that's right, then, like, I'd rather go out and use my, my white privilege to try to, like, be the one there watching what's happening and not going to back down and not going to leave. And they try, they would try to get us to leave and they would try to make sure that we weren't there. And, and so us being there made sure that they were getting away with less than they would have gotten away with otherwise. What aspect of the coverage that, that came out of those, those events the, at that time did you feel most, most proud of or that you felt was the most powerful work that you guys were doing? I really think that what we're able to do well as, you know, not with a small, small staff, is to be able to be on the ground. That kind of, I mean, I think a lot of people said things like City Paper just killed the on, it killed the daily with, we had one photographer, they had 60 out, and we killed them on what we got on the, on the ground coverage. And the same with, with our, our reporting from being out there because people in the streets trusted us more than they trusted the sun. Um, the Daily Paper. People in the, the in West Baltimore didn't trust the Sun much and did trust us. So we were able to be on the ground and get that firsthand perspective. People would talk to us on the ground. We were able to talk to gang members 
um, people like that that the dailies weren't talking to. But where we didn't do nearly as well was being able to look at the records, look at the cop side, do the digging, the investigative kind of stuff. They did a great job on that, and I was extremely proud of all of the local media. And between all of those things working together, I think we did just uh, as good. I, I was more proud to be a journalist during that, and and of all of I mean, you'd see the Sun people out, and, and there wasn't any kind of, you know, part of our, our raison d'etre was to, to give them shit. And it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't doing that. It was really like, how do we help each other? How do we make sure each other are safe? How do we... But I think we were... At, and so that's what I was really proud of, was being able to show... Um, and I really, I mean, I'm a writerly kind of... of the week before that happened, I wrote a 10,000-word highly literary piece about the Lexington market, the oldest market in Baltimore. And, and so I, I really try to take a lot of care with craft and long form, but I was as proud of my tweets as I was of anything because during that week, because people needed it and people wanted it and they didn't necessarily, but then afterwards being able to follow up, being able to, the, the American journalism review said the when they were covering the, the local coverage of the stuff that the Baltimore City paper with its borderline literary coverage. <laughs> I was glad we were able to give still a kind of literary take to and show some of the weird, beautiful moments that were happening because it wasn't just people are wrong when they call it a right. It wasn't just it's not something that like, oh, I'm so sorry. It would happen to your city. Someone was proud of my city. It was something that that I realized that we have a, a fucking apartheid city and people rose up against that. And that was something to be really, really proud of. And there were beautiful moments in that as well as I think that we were able to capture those beautiful moments and bring a perspective to it, not pretend like we were all equal about everything after I'd seen someone getting beat down. I'm I'm not going to the cop who beat him, I, you know, and then the guy who picked him up. I'm sorry, but I care. I, I'm more on the side of the guy who picked him up and doesn't have all the power structure at his back than I am at the guy who beat him down and has the power structure at his back. Let's just talk a little bit about your relationship and the, the paper's relationship with the city government and with the police. Um, did you do you think because of the way you were doing it? I think I guess you could, maybe I'm reading between the lines here that there was sort of this confrontational um, feeling between you guys. Yeah, there definitely was. Though there has been, but there was before that also. I think they, the mayor and I, had personally had. Some conflicts before that, and, you know, they, they see us as the gadfly kind of paper, and so they're not going to go to the, – the, the crime reporters at The Sun are the ones that they're going to go to and get the – you know, and, and people mistake those guys for cops when they're out on the street. They kind of look like cops. They kind of – you know, people mistake us for hippies or whatever, and so, so it's uh, – uh, yeah, there's always kind of that relationship, and, and – Although, you know, I'd had a, a, like I said, I'd had a great relationship with the commissioner before that. And even in the most tense moment when I saw him out on the street, he immediately came up and shook my hand. And so there, there was, it wasn't all adversarial. And there were also the moments when, one of the funniest things was we were down on the last night of the curfew, down by the city jail. It was really, really, really tense. The police had just arrested legal observers and humanitarian, uh, like, street medics. And observers and one of the, the guys who I'd followed in the fall for the longest during the protest there, this guy, Joseph Kinn, who was, you may remember on the C on CNN, he was the guy that was like dramatically swooped up by National Guard. It looked like a kidnapping. He became a hashtag. He'd gotten out and they arrested him again. 
that night. And so we're all standing there, and, and the Baltimore jail, which just got closed by the governor, is this old medieval-looking affair. It was where the black gorilla family had been in control. You hear the the people up in the police, I mean, up in the jail and the holding cells, banging and chanting, all night, all day, we will fight for Freddie Gray. And you can hear it coming from the, and it was like the most lonesome sound you've ever heard. And you have the, the cops come and they want to see our credentials and they're yelling at us to get on the curb with spray. And then the CNN guys are there, and I think it was Don Lemon, um, and they say, where are your credentials? And they're like, Google me. And the cop just said, fuck you. And all of us other reporters clapped for the cop um, because, you know, we there was a real antagonism with the national press who came in, at least the TV press, who came in with security guards from the very first day before there was any kind of danger, who really stoked stuff and made it worse and were, you know, and, and there were some great national and international people that, that were there. The Guardian, I thought, was doing some really good work that were on the ground you know, that weren't the cable news guys, but the cable news guys were. So there was the moment when we were all Baltimoreans, whether you were a cop or us, and we were together against that. We were all out doing our jobs. And then these guys were there with a bunch of egos. So you're you being local, being from Baltimore, that was a benefit to to your coverage, you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would go somewhere and we'd say like wherever we went and people would get ready to like what a wild right by the CVS where it was burning. Um, someone, the only time someone came up to me and, and the photographer said, you know, what kind of phone you got? Wanted to take our, our phones. And, and someone said, no, no, they're city paper. And dude walked off. And almost any time when people would be really like angry and heated at the press, we'd be like, oh, we're city paper. And they'd be like, all right, cool. And let us pass. So how, how did your perception, did your perception change? From from before it started, or to to the after the events, or do you, do you feel that did it change you? I guess that's the question. Yeah, it it radically changed me. I I mean, it, it's hard to think back of sort of the the person I was before that. I I think that it it changed everyone in the city a lot. It changed me as a reporter in thinking differently about what we need to do and who we're there for. And we've really tried to. Before that, we'd really tried to recognize how much the history of alt-weeklies and of our paper had catered to white Baltimore and the arts coverage. We, In our normal fall state of the arts, just right before this, we had changed it to say that we have an apartheid arts scene and we need to, that has to change. And so instead of just having the fluffy kind of, here's what's coming up in the fall, we just said, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to address these problems. And it made me even more committed to these are the problems that just have to be addressed in our city and that it made our city try so, I mean, in our paper, try so much harder to address our own internal problems. We're an all-white staff, and that's a problem. And it really made that become our number one priority to change that and to shake that up. But it also made me see that those differences are self-imposed. Those segregations are self-imposed, that when I go and walk in any part of the city. I'm, it's not like I'm in danger or something because there's, it's not white people being around me. And it's not also not like I deserve, like the one guy said, some kind of sainthood or glory for that. It's, it's that kind of thinking is what causes all of our problems. Um, that whole notion of gritty, that whole notion of it's, it's just not real at some level. And, and then, you know, it's very real that 
and we don't know how to deal with this and where we're failing tremendously right now is July, May and July, we had the highest murder rates for any two months ever in the city's history. Prior was tied, the one that it was tied most forward was back when we had almost 300,000 more people. We're a city of 600,000 people now um, and have, I think as of today, uh, 229 murders so far this year. And a huge amount of that has come in the months after the uprising. And, you know, honestly, we've done a terrible job covering that as an as an alt. We we lost one of our great one of the great crime reporters, Van Smith, left a, a few months before this happened, like actually the week before the uprising, who may have been able to get a little bit. He'd been the person into the black gorilla family, but we just haven't had the resources to do everything we want to do. So that's the other way it changed me was how much more we need to do. And as a reporter, how little I want to be, you know, as managing editor, I spent a lot of time at the desk and running the office and I didn't want to do that, that it, it was being in the, the street talking to people. That's that is what is important about this. And it reminded me of that, you know, how important it is to be, out in the world, and now that we have the internet and stuff, we can get all the documents and do FOIAs, you know, on an app on our phone. And we need to do better at doing more FOIAs and stuff. But me personally, I I do best out on on the street, talking to people. We talked a little bit before we we started a discussion here, uh, started recording about the panel you did at uh, at uh, the AAN conference, which was about race and and, and crime coverage. And there was a lot of back and forth as to, to you know, how, how we can do this. And, and we both joked about the fact that um, there was a panel of four white people talking about race and, and how to solve that problem. And we're two white journalists and, and we're not going to solve that problem because it would be, you know, it's not really kind of our role to do that. Um, but we are journalists and, and we have to sort of look at who we are and the way we cover our communities and where we're we're not covering our communities the right way, or, or as well as we should be. That's my two cents. Yeah, I mean it's such a hard problem, and I think that it's. But it is the failure of that you know view from nowhere kind of objectivity where I pretend that I'm not a white guy who. Um, but you always are. Right. Who? That's what I mean. And so <laughs> since I am always that, we we really took decided much more until we can solve the problem better. And, and I mean, the one thing I will say that that when we gave that whole issue to um, to Freddie Gray, the, another re- reader who was was black wrote me and said, hey, you know, I was really upset that you only had two black writers in that whole issue. I thought it was a really great issue. And for once, that was actually for a good reason that the like most of our, our black freelancers were in the office that Monday night with us when we were there. But they were writing for the New York Times and they were writing for the Washington Post and for Vice and places that could pay them way better than us. And that's been a great thing is the some of some great, great writers of color in Baltimore have really kind of exploded out of this. Dee Watkins, Lawrence Burney, Stacia Brown are just killing it now and doing such good work that I'm I'm so happy that nationally people have discovered their voices and, you know, they're too big for us now and so that's that's great but it it hit me especially hard right after this you know i I grew up in south carolina originally right right by lexington where where dylan roof who who shot the nine at the mother emmanuel nine at at the church there and 
you know, my family was from Charleston, and Pinckney's were in my family, and they were slaveholding families. And, and all of that is the kind of stuff that we need to acknowledge and address rather than pretend isn't there. And it, that has changed me so dramatically of trying to figure out how as a writer to not just say, okay, I've acknowledged it, so now right. I can do whatever I want again, but how to really sort of fight through all of the problems that you know, we're dealing with in terms of race in America right now, while, like you said, being a, a white writer working at a largely white paper as, you know, the reason there were four white people at the on the panel at AAM because, you know, they couldn't find a writer of color in all of the papers to be on that panel. And that, I think, is the biggest threat more than, you know, shrinking classifieds and Craigslist and, and mobile and all that that Alt Weeklies are facing right now is how do we how do we become move from being the old white hippie papers to really reflecting better what our cities look like. Right. If you have a diverse city, I mean what how do you reflect that in the print that you have? Yeah. I mean if you it's it's the just writing about the black problem without actually acknowledging black voices or, or incorporating black voices or or peop, voices of color in in your coverage uh, you know in 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 your editorial decision making and, and covering that you know not that that every crime every black story has to be a crime story that it, you know the the, the life uh, of the of uh, of people of color isn't reflected in many of these publications in the way it should be. Right. And it doesn't have to be a poverty story and it doesn't have to be, um, and, you know, solving it by having a token columnist. Yeah. You know, that's the black voice isn't a way to go either. It seems to me that it's so essential and, and, and not even freelancers. We have a lot of like, great, I don't want to undersell them and undervalue them when I'm saying this stuff. We have a lot of really great black freelancers who write for the paper, but you need people who are going to be making the decisions on a day-in and day-out basis, not just doing stories that are assigned to them, but guiding and steering the color, the coverage that can really... I mean, Baltimore's a 65% black city, so... Yeah, why Yeah, why isn't your staff 65%? Why aren't the stories 65% yeah. to, to reflect that? Yeah. Uh, again, that's a, this is a that's something I don't think you are going to be able to figure out because uh, this country hasn't been able to figure it out in 200 some odd years. So since since the events that occurred uh, in April was it April, yeah. So how has the city changed, or has it changed? Yeah, I mean, like I said, we've had the two most violent months in our city's history, and so much of that seems to be. So the Bloods and the Crips had a. a Truce during the the events in April and the beginning of May, in which they were trying to keep everyone. And I saw saw them protect journalists who were being attacked out at at Penn North. There was a photographer that was being jumped, and and guys in red came and picked him up and got him out. And and you know they, I think the media, including us, made kind of a big deal out of this truce. But I think in reality, Bloods and Crips aren't the kind of crime problem in Baltimore that they are somewhere like California. That. All of the small families and drug crews and stuff like that and just people using the, the police. So we got rid of the commissioner. That's one way that it changed also. The mayor is dead in the water. There's no chance she's got our former mayor who resigned when she got convicted of a felony um, is running again. A whole slew. We're going to have the, the most people running for mayor in, in, <laughs> you know, in, in quite a long time. The... 
whole political sort of system is up in and the the governor who who I thought handled the events really horribly has really written Baltimore off has has killed the public transportation programs that would go to that would connect West Baltimore and the rest of the city. It seems unfortunately though like I said I was incredibly proud of the people of the city rising up against all of these problems. It seems like the leadership class has and and citizens too with the the killing and stuff. There was a evidently a sort of police slowdown. The police weren't doing you know the, there's been a big almost it almost was a coup between the police union and getting rid of the the commissioner when they didn't like the way he handled the events. It made our problems now seem more intractable. Uh-huh. Whereas for me it was a huge time of hope, and now it feels like our problems are more entrenched, but. There are a lot more people trying to have conversations and talk about them. Also, I worry there's a lot of people who want to have conversations and talk about it, and they don't really care. It's just, oh, it's hip to talk about Baltimore now. And I sort of worry about a little bit of that influx of, you know, the universities that didn't care, that are sort of suburban universities that maybe didn't care about Baltimore last year are now all, like, putting out edited collections or having classes on Baltimore and and. There's this kind of poverty and violence and uprising chic that that isn't so cool, but but it's good that people are still talk, talking about, you know, that are, people are talking about our problems and people are trying to deal with it. And, and the, the, the leadership, I think, is still failing as badly as before or worse. So what what's next for you? I mean, you're, you're still at the paper. What, what are you looking forward to? to working on, to writing, to sort of pursuing? There's a lot of stuff sort of going on, I guess. We have the trial, the hearings start tomorrow um, for the six officers, and there's a lot of interesting legal issues involved. So we're going to see, and protests start up again tomorrow. There's going to be a lot of intense coverage of that. The One of the reasons I was moving a little bit less hands-on at the paper is because I wrote a book a couple of years ago about a sheriff in South Carolina who... Um, and it really is a book about white policing of black communities. He took over an, a 97% black uh, county in South Carolina, the, the Beaufort Sea Islands, in 1926 when it was prohibition. So smugglers were going there. It was all these islands. And he ended up using hoodoo or African folk magic or root work to govern the county for 37 years and was a really complicated person. The, the county was on the verge of race riot at various times and throughout his career and he tried to protect the Gullah from the the sort of more racist white element but then he used prison labor almost as his private slave labor force so it's a really complicated story that is being made into a tv show by will smith hmm. uh right now so i've had to do a little bit of stuff for that but it also made me really want to work on a, another book so i just got back from greece i'd started this book when i first started at the paper and then got the gig and sort of put it to the side. But working on a story about, it was amazing. I was there right after the they had the vote whether or not to accept the austerity plan and stay in the union, but was on top of Mount Olympus reporting on people who still believe in the ancient gods, Zeus and the like. And um, I got into this weirdly to journalism was I was, uh, I did a PhD in ancient philosophy and I thought the only way to live a Socratic life was to get on the street and ask people questions. And so I gave up that I didn't want to be an academic. So I started 
doing this. So then it went kind of full circle back around to, so I'm going back to Greece in October, but I'll be back in Baltimore before the trial is supposed to start for the officers uh, on October the 13th. So there's all of those things kind of going on. And, and I'm trying to do a lot more really long form stuff. I, right before the uprising, like I said, I had this 10, two 10,000 word pieces in a row and it was hard to do that while running an office and not make mistakes or stuff like that. But my my writerly yin to go long was beating out my editorial yin to to sort of have my hand in everything. So before we wrap up here, I, I do want to talk about Baltimore. Um, I've I've lived in in D.C. since 1983, so I've been up up to Baltimore, you know, many times, and, and it's a it's a really wonderful city. And I know that the people I know who live in Baltimore love their city, and and you clearly love your city. Um, what, what, tell me about what does Baltimore mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I was just talking about that story on the Lexington Market because to me, in some ways, that is the essence of the city. It's it's. I mean, the city is such a mixture of old and new and. South and north and white and black, and it's just got, you know, lately one of the crazy things going on is the dirt bikes. You know, we have yeah. we have dirt bike riders riding through the streets. And also, so when the police started um, really cracking down on the dirt bikers, the people started going out riding horses through the streets. And, um, you know, that in some ways just really says so much about the essence of, of the city and and. Where everyone is, despite it being segregated heavily, where people live in a place like the Lexington Market, everyone is bumping up against each other all the time. And, you know, it's such a, a place. It's so full of life. When, you know, it's called H.L. Minkin said that, that when he would commute to New York to edit magazines, said that he New York was a good place to make money, but Baltimore was the only place to spend it. It is a place where people... The one thing people share is everyone really does like to have a good time. Um, you walk around the city and whether it's drinking an Adibo or smoking a blunt or having storytelling, it's a city of storytellers and, and big personalities, big voices. And so as a writer, you couldn't ask for anything more. It's it's everyone's got an, an amazing story to tell. Yeah. Well, I, I think you did, too. So I'm going to end it there. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also download episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter at All Journalism. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 